before we begin this episode of By Every Measure talking about systemic racism in education, I want to share a personal story with you. When I was in second grade, living in Charleston, South Carolina, I had an incident, I guess you call it my first incident with racism that I remember. I was handing my paper in to the teacher, it was an older white lady, and uh, right when I handed the paper in to her, right under her breath, I hear her say the N-word to me. And that stuck with me. I didn't even tell my parents till later in life, <laughs> probably my college days, that I told them that. But it was kind of traumatic for me. And doing this podcast brought up that memory again. But thinking about that, I'm thinking about all the instances that students and kids that look like me had to deal with in, in, in schools going beyond just being called the N-word, being handcuffed by police, being expelled for minor incidents. That is also traumatic, and that occurs across the country. And in this episode, we're talking about systemic racism in education, not just the outcomes or test scores. We're talking about bias among teachers, the school-to-prison pipeline, how black students are treated differently than white students when it comes to discipline. And we're also going to look at how schools are funded. All of this was studied more than 50 years ago in the Kerner Commission, which we have talked about in other episodes in this podcast. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. In the Kerner Commission, they recognized the disparity between black and white students in America over 50 years ago. And they made several recommendations, which alas, were never followed. A little more than a decade before the Kerner Commission, there was Brown versus Board of Education. You probably learned about this in school. The 1954 U.S. Supreme Court decision that rules segregation unconstitutional and in violation of the 14th Amendment. It's easy to think that was years ago. I wasn't even born, right? But it wasn't really that long ago. Remember Ruby Bridges? She was a young black girl who became the face of school integration and had to be walked into school by federal marshals. Now, she's only 66 years old, younger than my parents. But back then, she was in the national spotlight as a child, dealing with hatred. This is what white Americans were saying about school integrations. Segregation for both races is best. Segregation has and is working in the South, which contains two-thirds... There were protests all over the country over busing programs meant to integrate schools into the 1970s in places like Boston. Here's some archive audio from WBZ-TV to give you a sense of how intense these protests were. throwing eggs at the window and try to hit people with them. And there was stone, and while we was in school, there was stone glass at black people and little kids. So the audio you just heard was from the 1970s, but the issue of bias and prejudice in schools persists today. Black children are five times as likely as white children to attend schools that are highly segregated by race. And that is according to the Economic Policy Institute in a 2017 report. 
While segregation is technically illegal, the truth is it's still happening all over the country, including right here in Milwaukee and cities like it. That's where we'll start with Reggie Jackson. Why is it if someone says, well, you're separate but equal, what's the problem, right? What does segregation really do to a black community and black um, students? You know, I was a teacher for eight years and you're separate, but you're certainly not gonna be equal in any respects. They were building brand new schools on the South side for white families and didn't build uh, many at all on the North side. It, it took a great deal of pressure. It took, you know, boycotts by students to put pressure on Milwaukee public schools to build those. But the most important impact that segregation policies have is that the way we fund schools is based on property taxes. So as we created these segregated all-white spaces um, in certain parts of Milwaukee and then in the suburban communities, what you find is that the property taxes, um, because of the, the value of the homes, increased. The whiter the neighborhood got, uh, the higher the property values got. The, the, the less white the neighborhood got, the lower the property values went. And so what you end up having is a very uh, unbalanced system where our suburban school district's funding is significantly higher than within the city. That's why when you go to the suburbs, you'll see much nicer and newer school facilities compared to the schools in black neighborhoods, which in Milwaukee is the central city. More tax base and more funding. And man, I'm telling you, Tariq, when I go out to the suburbs, you don't go to schools, you go to campuses, right? You go to the campus of the schools and, and they're so different so different than the schools in the city of Milwaukee. Uh, you know, we have a lot of really old school buildings in Milwaukee. Uh, and and, and you, you know this as well as I do, Tariq, that if you go to a school that looks like really good and modern and has wonderful facilities, it makes you kind of feel good about yourself. Like, man, I'm going to get a really good education here. But then you go to one of the schools in Milwaukee that's maybe an old raggedy building where the air conditioner doesn't really work that well when it's hot. The heat doesn't work that well when it's cold. Uh, you know, the windows don't close properly, so there's a lot of cold air blowing into the building. You know, two of the schools I worked at, those were major issues that they couldn't figure out how to fix the windows so we wouldn't be cold in the classrooms. We literally had to sit in the classrooms with jackets. So it makes a big difference uh, for the students as well as the staff and the parents recognize it too. That's why so many black parents, Hispanic parents are always trying to get their kids out to the suburban school districts. Let's talk about discipline. Like, a lot of studies about how black students, especially black girls, uh, young women, are disciplined unequally. And basically, this also kind of leads into the uh, school to prison pipeline. So talk to me uh, about the, how, how discipline in schools is treated between the races. Yeah, yeah. There, there are huge disparities across the country uh, in disciplinary outcomes for uh, particularly between black and, and white students. Black kids are much more likely to be suspended uh, and expelled from schools than their white peers for, you know, participating in the same type of, you know, age-appropriate behavior. But the other side is because of unconscious bias and even some conscious bias by white teachers because the majority of teachers in the country are white. Uh, most of them are white females. When you have uh, black students, particularly black boys, they're much more likely to be sent to the principal's office, written up, uh, suspended, uh, eventually expelled. There was a national study about this in 2016 done by the U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights that showed black boys were more than three times more likely to be suspended one or more times compared to white boys, basically 18% versus 5%. 
Black girls, on the other hand, the difference between how they're treated is that they are treated in a less nurturing way. There's a, a big study done uh, called Black Girls Interrupted uh, several years ago. And what it showed was that there's this general assumption that Black girls are older than what their age is, uh, that they assume that they know more about sex than they do that they're less in need of nurturing um, than their white peers. And so if people assume you're less in need of nurturing and, you know, um, emotional support, then they're going to be less likely to do that for you. So as you can see, these differences in discipline are well observed, studied and analyzed. And bias starts early, as early as preschool. Yale University Child Study Center did a study on this back in 2016 and found even more proof of bias in education at a very early age. Here's how the study went. And these are young children. Had them sit at a table and had some toys and things on the table and had them play. And he asked a group of educators, these are black and white educators, a little bit of everybody. And he said, I want you to watch the video of these children and I want you to look for signs that are precursors to them misbehaving. So look for those, those little signs that they're about to do something they're not supposed to do, right? Um, and so the teacher said, and they watched this video, but what the teachers didn't know was number one, that these young children were actually trained actors. Uh, they, they did nothing. There was no misbehavior at all in the videos. I mean, they were trained to do everything the right way. Uh, but what the other thing was, the surprising thing, was that the computer screen the teachers were looking at, they actually had a device on it that tracked their eye movement. Mm. So it saw exactly where the eyes were looking. So you had a little black boy, a little black girl, a little white boy, and a little white girl. And when they looked through the data for all of these teachers, they found very consistently that a majority of the time, the teacher's eyes were on that little black boy. So, and so it showed that bias that's there. And it was, the bias was across every race of teachers that they, they tested. It wasn't just the white teachers that had this bias. Uh, the black teachers did as well. So these are things that are kind of built into, this, into our unconscious minds. But we have different expectations for black kids than we do for white kids. So no matter what, if you're a black student, you're more likely to be disciplined at school more often and more harshly. And it's not just being called to the principal's office. Schools are calling the police. In fact, nationwide, black boys are again three times as likely to be arrested at school as their white male peers. And black girls are one and a half times as likely as white boys to be arrested. According to that same government study, there's a police presence in many black schools. Yeah, you know, that, that's a big problem. You know, part of, of what the challenge is with, um, you know, schools calling police um, so uh, the reason that we have police in schools, people kind of forget this, is that uh, back in the early 90s, there were a, a multitude of school shootings around the country. You know, um, almost every, you know, several months, there was another like big school shooting. And this lasted really through the, the, the late 90s, early 2000s. There were several high profile school shootings. Now, what's interesting about those school shootings that no one really talks about, Tariq, is that there were always white kids that were shooting up their schools. But you're putting metal detectors where the black kids are and the Hispanic kids are. No black kids are running into the school with a gun 
and having a list of kids they want to kill. So because of those school shootings, you know, there was this, oh, we got to do something. We got to protect the students. We got to protect the staff. We got to put police in the schools. We got to have zero tolerance policies. What is known as zero tolerance policies were developed in the 90s after government passed the Gun-Free Schools Act back in 1994. The policy required students to be expelled for bringing a gun to school. However, schools started using the idea of broken window policies, a popular concept that if you crack down on minor violations, serious crimes would be prevented. And you start seeing students being expelled for minor incidents like smoking cigarettes, swearing, or even such a minor incident as cutting in line during lunch. Now you begin to have way more police contact. The students uh, are having the police called on them on a pretty regular basis. You know, I even saw this in schools that I worked in. You know, police are called when students are misbehaving. Now, instead of calling the parents and having the parents come up to the school and getting their kids straight, oh, we'll, we'll get a call of police. And, and, you know, we all know that the police are accustomed to dealing with adults. They're not accustomed to dealing with children. They don't understand, like many teachers, what um you know what normal behaviors for different age groups are and they'll come and they'll put kids in handcuffs um and 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 studies have shown that if you are uh expelled from school uh if you are suspended multiple times from school if you have any contact with the police while you're in school you are much much more likely to end up uh, going to prison at a later time of your life you know, multiple studies have shown that any police con contact as a student, you're much more likely to go to prison. Besides being exposed to the criminal justice system at a very young age, black and brown students that have contact with police face stress, trauma, and anxiety that creates mental health problems and hurts their educational performance. The school to prison pipeline starts way earlier than you might think. Reggie shares this story from Florida back in 2017. You might have seen it in the news where police were called on a very young black girl. The six-year-old black girl um, was, you know, she did some stuff in class. I, I guess she, she struck one of the teachers. But, you know, it's a six-year-old. So, I mean, you can't cause a whole lot of harm when you're a <laughs> six-year-old. Uh, but anyway, she, she struck one of the teachers. Um, and they called the police on this little girl, right? And so... Uh, there's a, the police body cam video of this incident. So the police come into the school. Okay, she's gonna have to come with us now. Okay, Kai, you Stand gotta up. go with them, baby girl. Stand up. Okay, come over here. Um, and this little girl uh, is in the office, and you know the officers come in and they're talking to her, and they literally make her stand up, and they put the you know the plastic. Uh, cuffs on her you know and they literally take this little girl out to the police car and put her in the police car and take her you know to the police station and the whole time she's begging and pleading and crying she's begging and crying i mean this is a really difficult video to watch it's so sad but the worst part of the video is when they come back in, one of the officers come, comes back in and he's talking to, you know, the, the administrators at the school and the people who called the cops. And they're like, you know, what, was that like really necessary? And the officer's like, yeah, you know. And then he starts to brag about how many kids over the course of his life he has arrested in schools. Um, the youngest I've ever arrested was seven. Um, Seven is the youngest. 
she's eight, isn't she? She's six. Now she has broken the record. She she broke the record. I mean, this guy's going on and on. It's like, dude, really? And of course, he gets suspended from his job uh, because he didn't follow the protocol. Uh, you're not allowed to arrest a student under the age of 12 without express permission from you know, uh, your superiors at the police station. So, you know, if, the, if your sergeant or lieutenant or whoever says, yeah, go ahead and arrest that six-year-old, you can do it. But you can't do it without them telling you. <laughs> like Reggie said, that audio is tough to take. But beyond having police in schools, there's also another issue, something that generally isn't in the classroom. There have been a lot of studies and memes and stuff about, you kind of brought up a little bit of having a, a teacher that looks like you're a black teacher, a brown teacher, that student of that same race will do better in school, right? Like, the, like there was a question, I see a lot of questions, like when's the first time you had a black teacher? Like I didn't have a black teacher until I went to Howard University. Wow. Um, wow. So can you talk to me about the, 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 the data and about that and why is the case of, of having a teacher, a black teacher with black students it's better for the black well, students. Yeah, I think it's about the culture. Uh, when, when you are from the same culture as the students are, uh, you are going to be automatically a culturally responsive teacher. You know, this is one of these, these things in education where you hear a lot of talk about culturally responsive uh, engagement of students, right? And what that literally means is that, you know, white parents need to get to know a little bit more about the cultures of black kids and Hispanic kids and Asian American kids and Native American kids because they don't know enough about those cultures to, to communicate really well and, and interact with those students in a, in a really, really positive way. Whereas if you are from that culture, you know, you listen, you, you, you know, you know, you know, from your personal experience, you, you know how to communicate better. Uh, and there is a level of respect. I've seen this myself. I've seen black kids be completely disrespectful to white teachers and then leave that class and go to the next class with a black teacher and be like the little angels in the classroom. Right. Uh, so there is a, a dynamic of white teachers who are, they, they show their fear. Right. And listen, kids are like little psychologists to read. They, they, hmm. they know who they can take advantage of. Hmm. They recognize it, man. And if, if they can take advantage of you, they will take advantage of you because that's what kids do. Right. Uh, and so what you have is you have uh, a majority of the teachers are, 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 are white. Uh, most of those are white females. So this is what you have. You go to any college that has a school of education and you go into those classrooms where people are going to school to become teachers. And a lot of these, you know, young white women want to, you know, go to the, the, the school and become a teacher. And they, they go to these what they call urban schools, which I, I hate the term urban. Uh, which is just, you know, a, a code word for black or Latino school, right? They go into these schools and they come in with a white savior complex, thinking that they're going to save these little kids. They need somebody to save them. They don't. They just need somebody to teach them. Uh, and then as soon as the black kids disrespect them, they don't know how to handle it. They're like, oh, my goodness. I, I've seen, I've literally seen young white teachers leave classrooms in tears, crying like the first or second day of school. I had a teacher that I worked with, Tariq, at one of the schools I worked at. And this woman literally, you know, as we were having the meetings leading up to, you know, classes starting over the summer, those 
couple of weeks where we're doing professional development and stuff, you know, she was very outspoken about how, you know, I, I, I know I can, can work with these types of kids and, you know, blah, blah, blah. She's just going on and on about how she's going to be like super teacher. Right. And, and, you know, I, I have all of the skills necessary to communicate and culturally responsive, blah, blah, blah. She's going on and on. Like, you know, she's going to be the greatest, she's going to be teacher of the year, her first day in school. Right. She didn't even last a week. She quit after mm. like four days. And you know why she quit? Because the kids saw through her right away. They like, you were the fakest such and such and so and so. And they were calling her all kinds of names because she was fake. And they realized she was fake and they called her out on it. And, and she didn't know how to handle it. So she quit literally four days into the school mm-hmm. year. Uh, and you also have some black teachers that are just as bad as the white ones when it comes to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being horrible to black kids and calling them out of their name and stuff like that. So it's, it's very problematic. And I think when it comes to having teachers who look like you, uh, you know, people complain, well, why, you know, black people tell me they need to have more teachers that look like the black kids and Hispanic parents are saying the same thing. Well, guess what? White people don't have to say that because most of their teachers going to be, <laughs> they're going to be white. So they don't have to complain that we need more white teachers. Have you ever heard anybody say we need more white teachers in the school? You've never <laughs> heard anybody say that, right? Because you, you just know that most of the teachers going to be white. So if it was the other way around, if we went out to some suburban school district and 70 percent of the teachers were teachers of color, I could guarantee you some white parents would have some issues with that. <laughs> They'd be up in arms like, well, I can't believe this. They have all of these, you know, these, these black teachers and these, these Spanish speaking teachers. And, you know, there's something I don't know if they're going to be as good. But, you know, you, we, we, we complain about it and there's something wrong. But white people, you know, they're, they're all good. Coming up on the second part of By Every Measure, we're exploring solutions, including two programs that are actively working to increase representation in the classroom. Danae Davis, Executive Director of Milwaukee Succeeds, joins us next as she shares her ideas on how to dismantle systemic racism in education. Radio Milwaukee is on a mission. And if you're here to discover new perspectives on music in Milwaukee, then you're on a mission too. Join today to support the programming you love. Visit RadioMilwaukee.org and click the orange heart. And we're back on By Every Measure. In every episode, we're talking to local leaders who are working on solutions in each of the systems we have discussed on this podcast. And these solutions aren't just limited to Milwaukee. Some of them could be scaled to other cities across the country that face similar issues as Milwaukee. We hope that by talking about them in this podcast, we can get the word out across the country. Now, I would like to introduce you to Danae Davis, who runs a nonprofit organization called Milwaukee Succeeds. It's focused on equity in K-12 education, specifically convening other entities to work better together to improve educational outcomes for students throughout their lives. It's part of the Greater Milwaukee Foundation, and it is one of 70 communities who are part of a national network called Strive Together. Our space or universe is early childhood through young adults. And because of the huge disparities that are based on race, ethnicity, and income, our primary centered focus is around racial equity. When Danae talks about students in Milwaukee, she often calls them her babies. It's such a human way to say it. 
to show that these kids in our city right now, they're our future, all of them. So I want to talk about, let's start off with discipline, because it seems like it's ingrained from teachers to principals to policies to, to treat especially uh, youth of color differently when it comes to discipline issues. And I think that affects down the line, graduation, college, careers, everything affects long-term of their whole life. So Tariq, you are bringing up something that's really near and dear to me insofar as honestly, the examples go all the way back to kindergarten. I think the solution is uh, two things. One is we don't need police practices to be a part of the solution in our schools, whether they are child care centers or K-12, elementary, middle, or high school. Um, that is not what we need. What we need are um, social workers and psychologists and nurses and better programs that engage parents in uh, partnership with how do we um, teach better development practices with our children and our babies. Um, but the bottom line is we have to understand that they are babies and children and young people. We got to start there and not act as though they are adults because they're not. Um, so I would say that one solution is we don't need to institute police practices as a means of addressing um, issues around that typically are represented in disciplinary and expulsion act. Let's go inside the schools. Let's. Another thing I've, I've read in articles is about diverse teachers, representation matters in teachers, that uh, if a black student has a black teacher, they're likely to perform better, go to college, do all the things, like be more successful. Yes. And let me just say yes, and I'm going to tell you um, a little bit of a story. So as I mentioned, the role of Milwaukee Succeeds, one of the programs that we have, uh, that we brought to Milwaukee, um, very proud to is something called Leading Men Fellows. And the Leading Men Fellows program basically was, you know, a cohort of 10 young men who are fresh out of high school. Um, so between ages of 18 and 21, let's say, um, predominantly African-American, some Latinx, um, and they're trained in the summer, and then they're placed as sort of paras in early um, child care centers, basically supporting the, the reading capability and literacy of three, four, five-year-olds. These young men, they they didn't have teaching as on their radar in terms of what they want to do when they got to grow up. You know, they didn't have good impressions about teachers. They had way too many teachers who verbalized their displeasure with their jobs. In other words, they didn't really want to teach these kids. And they didn't see anybody who looked like them in the classroom. There, they saw um, in their engagement with these babies, such progress um, based on the responsiveness of A, these young men looking like them, and B, because these men came from a place of love, you know, and nurturing and caring. And these kids would be able to write their names, they'd be able to spell, they'd be, they just were like sponges in their ability to read because of those two factors. Now, I know that's an anecdotal experience, but I'll tell you, it is absolutely, truly reflective of why we need to, to support the teacher pipeline and growing black and brown. The name mentions another local organization that is laser focused on that, City Ford Collective. 
which is working to create a pipeline to increase the number of black and brown teachers in Milwaukee, something that's clearly needed here and across the country. But even if we have better representation in the classroom, there are still many other problems that need to be solved with access. That takes us to our next topic, COVID-19 and how that ties back to education with e-learning and the digital divide. I've seen like, for example, in Oakland, Oakland Public School decided to go big, right? Like let's do, let's do $13 million, give every kid, every single kid, computer, Wi-Fi, and corporate corporations got involved in a big way. Twitter CEO gave $12 million of their $13 million goal. Uh, is this what would we need corporations to step up in this area? Because at the end of the day, this benefits them. If you get parents digital literate, you get people with Wi-Fi, not just hotspots, you give people real computers and all that, that only helps the kids learn, but that also helps the right. workforce. Exactly, right. I love your analogy and, and, um, and I think that it can't be small. So, you know, Milwaukee's tendency is to small itself, you know, so whatever the solution is, we'll just give you like a chunk of what's needed and then wonder why it doesn't work. You know what I mean? So in this case, um, and I applaud the Milwaukee Public Schools Foundation. I know City for Collective is doing a similar fundraising effort for um, for charter and and um, and uh, choice schools. Um, but who's not running into being part of the solution are the internet providers themselves. So whether it's Oakland or Chicago is another model where you know even Dane County for that matter. Um, where the providers are at the table and figuring out how to reduce the costs associated to a family's, um, you know, access to Wi-Fi, high-speed internet, um, without penalizing you because you didn't pay a bill. You know what I mean? Which is, we, to my knowledge, um, is in discussions, but the sense of urgency I'm not feeling on the part of Spectrum and AT&T, for example, or Charter. So I think that leadership in Milwaukee needs to insist that these providers be a part of the solution. Finally, I want to, as you know, I, I went to HBCU, Howard University. Yeah. Um, you lucky person. My son did too. He went to Tennessee State. The role at HBCU, like, feel like I got something that I probably would not ever got going to a, a PWI, a predominantly white institution like UW-Madison or Georgia Tech, where I'm from Atlanta. If I had some of that experience at the K-12 level uh, 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 from Howard, I might be different, right? Even more wealth, more whatever, right? You definitely would be more wealthy, but you wouldn't be more brilliant because you already are brilliant, so. <laughs> oh, thanks. But yeah, like, I, I was thinking about that. Like, I've seen like, you know, uh, Amazon's, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife gave $40 million to Howard, all this stuff. The HBCUs, one, because there's none in the Midwest, do you think they have a role in, or should they have a role or should they get more funding to play a role in the K-12 realm for Black students or even the, the um, uh, Latino uh, institutions as well? Yes, 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 and yes. What is gained, as you know, being an alum of Howard, is that's where your foundation comes from. Mm -hmm. Your knowledge and belief and your support in, in, a, in, a, in a foundational way is born out of your HBCU experience. And every HBCU uh, graduate that we all know wears that proudly. Mm -hmm. Somehow or another, you know, yeah. they, you know what I mean? When they tell you 
graduated went to college. You'd say, oh, I know that. You know what I mean? So I think that um, that's the evidence of why that would be very helpful in our K-12 system in Milwaukee, what you just said. But again, we are probably going to be more successful if we figure out grow our own type of pipelines um, in the meantime. And whether grow our own means that they go to an HBCU to uh, get their degrees and then come back here, we've got to do multiple facets until we change the reputation of this city to one in which Black people are known to not only survive, but thrive, Mm. to not be able to demonstrate that with enough people is just continue is going to continue to impede our ability to change the racial um, demographics within our K-12 school system. So here's a recap of some of the solutions we talked about in this episode of By Every Measure. First, shutting the valve of the school to prison pipeline. One way to do that is reduce or eliminate the contact students have with police. Only calling the police only when absolutely, I mean absolutely necessary. Think bold in terms of closing the digital divide. Get companies, corporations, and internet service providers at the table to remove the barriers to e-learning access for all students, especially now during this pandemic. This next one is very important. Fund organizations like City Ford Collective and the program to name mention, Leading Men Fellows, both are actively involved in recruiting black and brown teachers and helping schools move toward better representation in the classroom. We'll provide more information about these efforts in our discussion guide for this episode. And finally, thinking big. These are big ideas which can't be attacked with patchwork action. Funding public schools in a way we do now based on property taxes has gotten us exactly to where we are today. We will close out with one more thought from Reggie that ties everything up and helps show why thinking bigger is long overdue. Imagine if we if we still built cars the way we built cars in 1920. Would you want to drive a car that was built the same way they built cars in 1920 with no seat belts, right? We, we would never, we would never build cars in that same way again, right? Mm-hmm. But when it comes to education, we basically still teaching the same way we did 100 years ago, 150 years ago. The model hasn't changed. Coming up on the next episode of By Every Measure, we're talking about the most precious resource anyone has, their health. It's no surprise that black people face a much worse outlook when it comes to their health by lots of different metrics, preventable death, infant mortality, and higher rates of certain illnesses. But we also face bias in the healthcare system itself. These disparities are literally life and death. We'll break it down next time on By Every Measure. By Every Measure is hosted by Tariq Moody and Reggie Jackson. Executive produced and edited by Nate Immig, with additional production support from 88.9 Program Director Jordan Lee, Marketing Director Sarah McClanahan, Marketing Coordinator Aaron Bagata, Web Editor Evan Rentleski, Audio Producer Salam Fatire, 
Executive Director, Kevin Sucker, Content Marketing Manager, Amalinda Burridge, Community Engagement Manager, Maddie Reardon, and Imaging Manager, Kenny Perez. Handcrafted sonic inspiration from the License Lab, and our sincerest thanks to our members for making all Radio Milwaukee content possible. By Every Measure, an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.